The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, as well as news from the front lines, we hear about the reception offered by Oxford University to Russia's ambassador to the UK, reflect on the life of Henry Kissinger, and hear how soldiers and commanders think about fighting in extreme cold temperatures. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 30th of November, one year and 279 days since the full-scale invasion began. Today, to discuss the latest news from Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined by Assistant Common Editor Francis Durnley, Education Editor Louisa Clarence-Smith and former Armoured Warfare Commanding Officer and Chemical Weapons Expert Hamish de Breton-Gordon. I started with the updates from Ukraine. There have been overnight strikes across the east, mainly in the Donetsk region, that have caused deaths and injuries. This is according to, or coming from local authorities. They say Russia launched 20 missiles across three settlements, and of those 20, 14 shot down, and the other six caused the damage. Then elsewhere in, uh, in Ukraine, another Russian general is reported to have been killed. So... This is Major General Vladimir Savadsky. He's the deputy commander of the 14th Army Corps, said to have been blown up by a landmine, which he apparently stepped on 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 Tuesday. But it's not exactly clear where he was killed. His death was first reported by Colonel Anatoly Stefan, who's a Ukrainian military officer and comes on the back of, uh, well, several Russian generals that have been killed in the war so far. That is going to link to the next bit here. So there's been a bit of jiggery-pokery in Russian command and control, i.e. the organisation of the, of the Russian military, who, who does what where and who can order whom to, to do what. It's a fairly, well, I mean, it's critical, but it can be quite niche about are you able to assign missions to certain units or only tasks within a mission and what level of command... What command relationship do you have to have to say, for example, to a load of tankies, right, lads, get out your tanks. You are now going to be artillery soldiers. There is a certain command at which point they have to do that. And others where they say, no, 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 you're not my commander, etc., etc. So command and control is absolutely critical. And on that, so the ISW, Institute for the Study of War, and Britain's MOD have both highlighted today some recent assessed changes to Russian command and control structures and organisations. And ISW say that the apparent failure by Russia to establish a coherent command structure among those forces trying to defend the east bank, the left bank of Herzon across the river, Dnipro River, continues to degrade Russian morale and combat capabilities and has led to deaths. Now, as I say, this is worth looking at. I remember Mark Colton Smith, who was the, our former Britain's former chief of the general staff, so head of the army, last but one. He was before he was CGS. He was once the commander of a military group that I was in, and um, he always said, "We well, said two things." And he said, "If you fail to get the command and control right, 
you are on the back foot immediately because it's just the organization is just an absolute buggers muddle. I'm paraphrasing there, but he said, get the C2 right, command and control. Or if you fail to, you are absolutely tying one hand behind your back. He also said his other, his other favorite expression was about how to command. He would say, delegate until it hurts and then delegate some more. He really was all for well, kind of the Western way, which is not always exercised by everybody because it is it takes great, great confidence, really, in a commander. You know, trust the people below you. Give them the resources. Give them a mission, clear mission, and the resources to do it, and then just let them get on with it. But delegate until it hurts and then delegate some more, which is always, always, always good to hear. Now then, so what's been happening? Ukrainian general staff reported yesterday that elements of Russia's 810th Naval Infantry Brigade operating near Krinky, which, remember, is about 30 k's northeast of Herzon City, but across the river, across the Dnipro River. They are refusing to conduct assaults on Ukrainian positions due to a lack of artillery coordination, tactical intelligence transmission and proper communication about the location of Russian minefields. The Ukrainian general staff say that maps of Russian minefields have been classified such that some Russian commanders can't see them and have not properly coordinated with assault units about their locations. Now, they say that this has led to 50 casualties in the 810th Naval Infantry Brigade in the last month alone. Now, elements of that, the 810th, arrived in Krinky around October. They appear to have taken over responsibility for that immediate area from elements of a newly created Russian 18th Combined Arms Army following the start of whatever that thing is, the bridgehead, the lodgehead, lodgement across the river, which, you know, take mid-October as a start point-ish for that. Now, my, when I read that, my first alarm bell started ringing straight away. When you've got a newly created force, this 18th Combined Arms Army, that's fine, you know, there's always reorganisation in war, but when you have a new, a new organisation, a new formation, it is very easy for it to come unstuck quite quickly, because it takes a little while to shake out, to work out quite who's in charge of what and where it sits, and for the, all the, the formations and units either side to work out who the hell they are and all that kind of stuff. So having a new organisation and chuck it straight into contact with the enemy is a gamble. Now, the reported minefield incident suggests that the command of the 18th Combined Arms Army didn't share relevant tactical details with the 810th Naval Infantry Brigade's command, suggesting that high-level Russian commanders responsible for that whole defensive area haven't quite worked out how to coordinate with each other. This Russian, what's called the Dnipro grouping of forces, is increasingly comprised of disparate elements of recently transferred and degraded units and new formations, which may be contributing to this apparent lack of a coherent command structure. Some units are thought to have been transferred to Hezon, or this area of Dnipro, after being smashed up in the Ukrainian counteroffensive further, well, further to the east in Zaporizhia Oblast. So, you know, if they if they are already degraded and exhausted, they need time to recuperate and regenerate rather than go straight into a new a new structure and straight into contact again. Russia normally groups its military forces in Ukraine along military district lines, and they are as in western, southern, and so on from from Russia, and they are often backed up with VDV units, so the airborne units, which before they took an absolute mauling in Ukraine, were considered the better trained and certainly the better equipped forces. So the VDV is generally taken to be a kind of, you know, to put a bit of, bit of steel in the backbone type thing, literally and figuratively. 
So the Russian Dnieper grouping of forces appears to be composed of elements of the Black Sea Fleet, the Caspian Flotilla, Southern Military District, Central Military District, Northern Fleet and the VDV. So that doesn't follow the, the pattern that Russia normally adopts. For comparison, the grouping in charge of Russia's defence in western Zaporizhia against that against Ukraine's uh, counteroffensive looks mostly to be comprised of elements of the 58th Combined Arms Army from the Southern Military District, reinforced, as expected, with a few uh, regiments of airborne forces, the VDV. Now, they have not suffered the apparent coordination issues that the Dnieper grouping has suffered. So it shows that if you, if you work together, train together, live together, understand each other, then it, it, everything just works a lot, a lot easier. Now, the Russian military command appointed a VDV commander, Colonel General Mikhail Toplinsky, in charge of the whole Dnipro thing uh, in late October 29th. And one of his primary tasks is likely to be to get this command problem under control. The Russian military command is thought, this is ISW assessment, thought unlikely to remedy this crisis in the short term. And Ukraine's ongoing offensives across the river is only going to complicate that effort. And as we saw in, in Bakhmut, once Ukraine, as any force should do, but once Ukraine sees the fault lines between the formations or sees the effect on the ground of these command and control, you know, what the organogram on paper, you know, when that's laid out on the ground and they find the, the crinkly bits and the bits where it's not quite working, they will push against it. So they, and we think that's what they have been doing and they will undoubtedly continue to do so. Now, today's MOD, also today's update from Britain's MOD, says that Russia's airborne forces has likely started deploying a newly formed 104th Guards Airborne Division for the first time. Again, alarm bell, first time. The division's probably in Hezon, but MOD's not, not sure, but does say it's likely to be poorly trained and unlikely to meet the what they call the erstwhile elite standards of the VDV for the reasons I've said before. Um, it will almost certainly, however, receive very close scrutiny from the guy in charge of everything, as I've just mentioned, Colonel, oh, sorry, General Colonel Mikhail Topolinsky, because as well as being in charge of Dnipro, he's also the, the he's the kind of overall commander of the VDV. So he might try to get his arms around them very quickly, or or you know sack a few people, move a few bits and pieces around. Anyway, so all to watch for. A bit, like I say, a bit a bit wonkish potentially, but it can be absolutely fundamental if you don't. If you don't get the organisation right, then it's very, very difficult to, to generate any kind of momentum, and that's going forward, and any kind of coherent defence if the if the enemy are coming at you. So let's keep our eyes on that area. Now, Francis Patrick Porter, friend of the pod, friend of mine, professor of international security at the University of Birmingham, he's been writing today in the Critic magazine. He said, "Quote: Henry Kissinger is dead. Let us speak ill of him." He was a man who, having studied and practised power, came to love it. From that failure, bad things flowed. Is he fair, Francis? Thanks, Tom. Well, that's certainly one view of him. His death, age 100, marks the passing of one of the world's most famous and controversial uh, political scientists and geopolitical consultants. Never has an academic been so conclusively swept up into power and celebrity he enjoyed eight years from 1969 until 1977, I think, on the commanding heights of American foreign policy. And in that time achieved an acclaim which a president of the US might and did envy. Yet with the possible exception of Donald Trump, he remained the most polarising figure in US politics, with some calling him a war criminal. 
But we're Ukraine the latest, and it's that war which has to be our focus. Kissinger's evolving perspective on this conflict, I think, captures an inner struggle within the West about how to respond to Russia's aggression. Presidents, prime ministers and foreign secretaries have been paying tribute this morning. Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, remarked the century of Henry Kissinger was no easy one, but its great challenges fit his great and curious mind. Putin, too, has praised Kissinger as a wise and far-sighted statesman who strengthened global security. Addressing Kissinger's widow, he wrote, The name of Kissinger is inextricably linked with a pragmatic foreign policy line, which at one time made it possible to achieve detente in international tensions and reach the most important Soviet-American agreements that contributed to the strengthening of global security. I had the opportunity to personally communicate with this deep, extraordinary man many times, and I will undoubtedly retain the fondest memory of him. Now, that wording from Putin is revealing and should be read, I think, as an overture to the so-called realists in the United States for whom Kissinger is often seen to represent, who are more likely to look fondly on the notion of some kind of negotiated settlement in Ukraine, as opposed to pushing for outright victory against Russia. This indeed seems to be Kissinger's early view. Long-standing listeners will recall the meeting of Davos after the invasion where Kissinger seemed to suggest that Ukraine had effectively won its freedom and that it should bank its success by going to the negotiating table and conceding some territory in order for the world to return to what he termed the status quo ante. He feared that a febrile international environment was dangerous, not least because of the risk of an escalation with China. But his view does seem to have changed somewhat, arguing back in May that it was vital for Europe's long-term security that Ukraine join NATO, going much further than many in his school of thought who urged that it would be provocative. Perhaps we can come back to Kissinger in a moment. Such debates, as I say, remain at the heart of Western disagreement about how far to go in supporting Ukraine, not least in the United States. Republican intransigence means that today Democrats are considering imposing tough new immigration rules as part of a bargain with Republicans to secure billions of dollars in funding for Ukraine. Senators from both parties are locked in talks over a string of proposals, including tightening the rules for would-be asylum seekers at the US-Mexico border. Senate Republicans are making the demands of potential condition of their support for the president's request for that $106 billion emergency funding for military aid to Ukraine and Israel. Democrats are under pressure to secure a deal, of course, as soon as possible, with the White House calling it a critical time for Ukraine and one senator warning Kyiv was close to being out of bullets. Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader in the Senate, has said that he hopes to put the aid package to a vote next week. But, and I quote, Republicans are making it difficult. We're going to keep at it. Now, on the other side, we have Russia becoming increasingly belligerent externally and internally. As we discussed with Jade McGlynn yesterday, Putin reiterated his two-part conception of Russian identity in a speech this week, claiming that it included Russians, Ukrainians and Belarusians at the centre of this new identity, and indeed a wider Russian world that included other non-Eastern Slavic identities in both modern Russia and the former territory of the Soviet Union and Russian Empire. 
The clampdown, too, on journalist dissent is also very well documented by us and others. Steve Rosenberg at the BBC has just published a piece on LGBT groups. Russia's Justice Ministry has filed a motion with the Supreme Court to have what it calls the International LGBT Public Movement declared an extremist organisation and banned even though no such organisation exists as a legal entity. We learned today, too, that foreigners entering Russia, those who are allowed to anyway, (coughs) uh, could be required to sign a loyalty agreement upon arrival, pledging not to criticise Moscow's invasion. This move, under new rules being prepared by the Interior Ministry, would oblige foreigners to comply with strict laws banning criticism of the conflict in Ukraine. The foreigner would also have to comply with not sharing public information about LGBT relationships under Russian legislation and refrain from distorting the historical truth, their term, of the Soviet rule and role in the Second World War. Now, if you're interested in that subject, listeners may be interested in the Defence in Depth video I did a few weeks ago called Putin's Top Three Lies, where I looked in detail of Putin's distortion of the Second World War for his own ends. Now, globally, these tensions I've just summarised continue to simmer as a result of Russia's actions. Bulgaria's refusal to let Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's plane fly across its airspace was what Moscow deemed a malicious stupidity and sets, they said, a dangerous precedent. Russia spokesman for Foreign Minister um, Maria Zakharova is under EU sanctions and supposedly that was the reason why her flight was uh, not uh, permitted by Bulgaria to enter their airspace. Kazakh authorities have also interestingly blocked Russia's Sputnik 24 service, which broadcasts Russian state-controlled television channels into Kazakhstan. Earlier on October the 24th, Moldova also blocked access to 22 Russian media sites, saying they were being used as part of an information war against the country. As James Kilner has reported many times for us on the podcast, despite... Kazakhstan's historically close ties to Moscow, its president has made it clear that Kazakhstan will not recognise occupied Ukrainian regions as Russian territory and recently embarrassed Russian delegates by its meetings with Russians being held in Kazakh, not Russian. And so we're seeing here further examples of countries that were formerly in its orbit being forced by this war really to respond in a way differently than Moscow would like and expect. And just lastly, as analysed by the Institute for the Study of War, Poland is also reportedly considering sending military advisers to Finland in response to Russia's ongoing attempts to artificially create a migrant crisis on the Finnish-Russian border. And just since I mentioned the ISW there, our friends Simon Usborne has written a long read for us on their work, which goes into much more detail on how they produce their maps and reports. The piece is called... Washington Whiz Kids Changing Rules of War Mapping. And we'll make sure we put a link in the description, a really fascinating piece, which I know will be of interest to listeners. Now, Wise Francis, always a pleasure to hear from you. Just before, you, before we move on, actually. So, come on then, Kissinger, where, where are you? Because there, there's a lot of comment I've seen today wrapped up in, in a note from, I can't remember who said it, but basically the 20th century called and they want their ideas back type thing. So, yes, he was a pivotal figure, very controversial figure, particularly about the peace negotiations in the Vietnam War and whether or not he scuppered the Paris peace negotiations. But, I mean, he was he was 
formed in the in that Cold War period when it was huge monolithic blocks of countries and very clear ideologies. And I mean, do you think his theories evolved post Cold War such that he still had relevance, or was he was he still cashing in cashing on his on the old on the history that he had up to then and his time in and close to government? I just wonder if you know it's interesting, striking that that. He, the people that have been praising him today from Kaleba and Putin. I'm sure that there's, there's room in my head, not everybody's, but room in my head for such contradictory um, ideas. But um, it, it is quite striking that they both came out with these kind of characters. Although very interesting, as, as you noted, that uh, the Putin kept referring to Soviet. I mean, it's still all on that identity about trying to draw it back to the past, which goes into the LGBTQ plus stuff and the identity politics we spoke about yesterday and women should have eight babies and so on and so forth. Bit of a ramble. So, Francis, so where are you with Kissinger in Ukraine? Well, that's a huge question. I think it really depends on which Kissinger we're talking about here, early or late, when you've got a life that spans a century. Of course, one's ideas are bound to evolve, one's philosophy too, to a degree. And I've already given examples there of where in the Ukrainian context, Kissinger's position perhaps did deviate somewhat over a prolonged period of time. I think much of the controversy around him relates to Vietnam and relates to his attitudes towards China in particular. And I've spoken to many people offline, people who listen to us and academics experts who've talked about Kissinger's, they've said, weakness on the question of China, very much wanting to extend the West's hand and to essentially appease China in what is, by Western terms, be considered hostile activity and indeed anti-democratic and autocratic uh, means of imposing its will on the world and on its own people. So, But I'm not really wanting to focus perhaps particularly on that aspect. I want to look at him more in an intellectual sense, which of course is where his biggest influence is seen and felt. You mentioned there that his being born or shaping much of or being shaped by the 20th century. And of course, that is true. This is a man who served in the Second World War before serving in academia and in politics. But I would actually argue that much of his conception of political philosophy is born in the 19th century. Indeed, Kissinger wrote his Harvard doctoral dissertation on the Congress of Vienna. Of course, that very famous uh, meeting, international conference after the Napoleonic Wars, which sought to restore the balance of power to Europe. And I would argue really that his uh, approach to foreign affairs is really shaped on that kind of model, building a balance of power between great entities, even if that means finding common ground and sacrificing some people in the middle. I mean, Vienna's philosophy was simple, to restore the old pre-Napoleonic boundaries of Europe and distribute territory in order to retain balance and peace. It did so largely without consulting citizens of the smaller nations whose boundaries were being withdrawn. And I think it's important to remember that the Congress laid the groundwork for peace that did last until 1914, the reason, of course, that Kissinger was so keen to praise it. Yet the doctrine of realpolitik that forged that and still followed by Kissinger and his followers is less suited to the Europe and indeed the world of today. Yes, Vienna was a success, but it was a success for a pre-democratic, largely autocratic continent. It worked because it was still the age of absolute power, maintained through monarchy and alliances between unelected elites. 
more modern examples that modelled themselves on the Congress, Versailles in 1919, Potsdam in 1945, were hardly unmitigated successes. Versailles dictated unwise peace terms to Germany and arguably sowed the seeds of the Second World War. Potsdam laid the foundations of the Cold War that kept millions behind the Iron Curtain for half a century. And indeed, I think one could argue that in the modern era, the carving of nations in the name of peace without consent more often fuels discord than suppresses it. And not only this, but it ignores another valuable lesson, which is that it wasn't appeasement that led to victory in the Second World War or the Cold War for the West, but strength, really. Following Pearl Harbour in 1941, the Allies were uncompromising against the Axis powers. They sought unconditional surrender. Likewise, in repudiation of Kissinger's detente doctrine of forging closer ties with the Soviets during the Cold War, it was the tougher stance that was adopted by America and Britain in the 1980s that ultimately defeated the Soviet Union when you have Reagan and Thatcher accelerating the Star Wars programme and economic warfare in such a way that pressurised the Soviets into engaging in a contest they were unable to win. This and Gorbachev's awareness that the Soviet system could not compete without reform, not realising that this was impossible without triggering its demise, proved fatal for the Soviets. So I think there's much that can be contested in the philosophy that Kissinger is known for and its relation to the 19th century and actually how relevant it was in the 20th. And of course, but much of his particular legacy and controversies was about specific actions that he advocated for and defended, as I say, relating to Vietnam, Bangladesh, Cambodia. And it's in those areas I think his legacy will be most fiercely contested. But related to our purposes in Ukraine, I think, as I say, that many of these debates are still extremely relevant. And the realist school, the pragmatist school, so-called, have arguably been more dominant of late. And if we disagree with that and the conclusions reached that, it's very important, I think, to challenge Kissinger's approach and indeed to debate his ideas. So a very relevant man for our times, despite being perhaps a man more of the 19th century than the 20th, Dom. Mm, fascinating stuff. Thanks, Francis. Now, I'm going to take a little pause here. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the pod for the first time Louisa Clarence Smith, our Ed Ed, education editor. Uh, Louisa, welcome, welcome, welcome to the pod. I'll start you off with a gentle one. What happened last night at Oxford University? Hi, Dom. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, so last night at Oxford University, there was a protest outside a hotel um, in the area by mainly by students who are part of the New Russian Society. And they were protesting against the appearance of the UK's ambassador from Russia, Andre Kellen, who was there to give a talk and answer some questions. The talk was organised by the Majlis Society, a small student debating society. Now, they say they're dedicated to the revival of sophisticated thought through discussion and cultural exchange. And they say that they truly believe that the ability to speak personally with the Russian ambassador will allow a greater level of comprehension of the ongoing conflict to be reached. However, other students say, actually, why is the university giving a platform to someone who's effectively promoting genocide? And what's your feeling on this? I mean, because he spoke there last year. We had um, had a reporter there at, at the event. And I mean, it's a tricky one because, you know, in this country, we we enjoy freedom of speech. We defend freedom of speech. Russia is not a prescribed organisation, like a terrorist organisation. So can therefore be denied the oxygen of, uh, of publicity and what have you. But where do you think 
Oxford universities sit on this? And are these protests, are they, are they, is it, do you think it's going to go anywhere? I think Oxford in a, in a, is in a difficult position and this whole event underlines the challenges for universities in this space. Free speech in universities has been a big ongoing debate. It really blew up earlier this year when Oxford Union invited Kathleen Stock, the gender-critical feminist, and some people from the LGBTQ community said her views are offensive and tried to no-platform her. It ended up with Rishi Sunak intervening personally, saying no, she should be allowed to give this talk. So they're very worried about being accused of not supporting free speech. Legally, they have a legal duty to support free speech, and that's going to be strengthened next year with the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Act, and they'll have to actually actively promote it. So it's kind of a question of what, what point does it veer into hate speech and what are the rules there for universities? I mean, it would be worth noting that there was opportunity at the end of the address for people to question the ambassador. I think there was a Ukrainian student there who was able to ask him directly, you know, you've made promises before... If, if we agree to some sort of negotiations in the future, how can we trust you? So that seems to be quite healthy. But I think some of the protesters did make some good points. I mean, one said you know, they previously studied at Central European University in Vienna, and now that university has been banned by the Russian administration. Obviously, the Russian administration is not an administration that itself supports free speech. So is there a bit of hypocrisy there if we're allowing him to come and speak at the university despite their own approach to free speech? So, yeah, it's definitely, I um, think, going to be an ongoing debate if the university continues to allow him to come and speak there. Yeah, thanks. And just finally, I mean, looking across the the education landscape in the UK, how do you think this is going to be received elsewhere? With, with some people think, oh, you've got a, you know, you've got star billing there, you've got a bit of box office, or is this within the context of no platforming and what have you? Do you think this other vice chancellors would feel this is a bit beyond the pale? Are, are Oxford taking a bit of a risk here? Yeah, that's a good question. I think they would probably hope to have to avoid having to address the situation at all, if possible. But I think in the past, and I mean, vice chancellors have been fairly sort of supportive of having different people go and speak at the university. So I think they'd probably follow Oxford's lead here and just hope they didn't have to get involved in it because they find it very difficult to respond to the different competing views of students and academics. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems to be a, a fairly, um, well, I'm sorry, it's only happened twice now. It happened last year. We had somebody there. We'll keep our eye out again next year and any other, any other event to go to. I mean, it is, it is, as you say, there's the glaring hypocrisy here about not allowing freedom of speech at home and just spouting rubbish. That is challenged. I mean, as you say, there were, there were questions from the floor. But I just, I just wonder, I mean, a, a little bit of Mr. Kellyan's soul must just die every time he has to come out with all this claptrap and people call him out on it but he's got to stick to the uh, the party line i suppose but we should keep our eye on on any other engagements he has here and, and send uh, send the f-bomb down to maybe uh, put a couple of points to him i mean you went, well francis you didn't get where oxford no you went a hull i think but anyway you could you can head over there louisa thank you so much for your time today please stay in touch any other uh, any other issues we do we should actually do a do a thing on um, on what's happened to education in ukraine as, as so many education establishments have been uh, have been destroyed and uh, and whilst there've been other groups set up to to continue, the the, the disruption is is immense. So uh, we will have you back, Louisa. But thank you so much for joining us today. Now, delighted to welcome once again friend to the pod, Hamish De Bruyne Gordon, Hamish DBG, former tank commander and and regimental commander, chemical warfare warfare expert. Hamish, welcome back. We spoke briefly earlier in this this week about the weather that seems to have turned in Ukraine towards winter now. 
Um, David caught me a little bit on the hop. <laughs> I offered some thoughts on the effect that operating and, and fighting in extreme temperatures can have. But for you, as a former soldier, I, an, an individual person on the battlefield, but also a regimental commander with great responsibility, what would you be thinking about as on operations as the temperature plummeted? Welcome, Hamish. Thanks, Dom, and uh, great to be back on. I I was actually hoping to be in London today, but the Tisbury Express is not running. Wrong sort of snow on the tracks, and we have a power cut. So I'm actually speaking to you from the roof of my garage, and it's freezing, and it's also snowing in South Yorkshire. So a pretty good place to talk about the cold. Oh, the glamour. (laughs) Yes. But my first memory, actually, is the first Gulf War. People might not think of Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Iraq with the cold, but Back in 8990, it was freezing. And after the Iraqis set fire to all the oil wells uh, and put a massive cloud above it, it was even colder and rained all the time. And it was immensely challenging. But uh, my my second key memory was when I was second in command of the 2nd Royal Tank Regiment in the British Army Training Unit Suffield in Canada, which is up in Alberta in November 2002, pre the second Gulf War. It was about minus 10 and it was snowing. And we had 32 Challenger 2s out there at the time. And actually on this particular day that sticks in my mind, we were leaguered up. That means we were all parked up doing maintenance while the infantry were fighting on a place called Mount Igman. Uh, And I was listening to them on the radio and, and it sounded horrific as we had our our V12 heaters, if you like, rolling over, keeping us all warm. I then got a hell of a bollocking from the brigade headquarters asking me why the regiment had used 70,000 litres of fuel when they hadn't moved an inch all day. Uh, I think I made up some story that we needed to run the engines to do all our pre-firing checks. But in all my many years on tanks, I've never actually really being that cold but but i'll come back to that so i know we're going to talk about tanks but but to me fighting in the cold and and thinking what is happening down in ukraine at the moment that there are three key things to me it's all about professionalism morale and kit and when we think about the opposing forces in ukraine i'm sure people can draw their own conclusions when i say professionalism that is a combination of training and, and leadership but the professionalism to make sure that your rifle is clean every day and that it works the professionalism to get out of that trench when it's freezing and do the patrolling do the reconnaissance it is very easy when it's very cold to to try and huddle down huddle around that fire and keep warm but those professional soldiers and there was a great documentary about the marines doing their winter training in in norway i think on the bbc a few years ago which really drove home to me and the the mountain leaders course do look it up i'm sure it's on the iplayer or whatever it's called yeah how challenging these things are but it it can be conquered so so to me it, it is all about that, that professionalism to make sure that you keep doing the things and don't try and huddle down. And when we think about morale, again, that's there's another function of leadership that people get round and make sure that's where leadership, that's where young officers uh, and, and senior officers come into their own who are cutting around the, the battlefield, the trenches to making sure that everybody has stuff that they need and kit. You know, it's, it's improved 
markedly. Um, the sort of kit I was wearing in the first Cold War, you know, 30 years ago, really looked a bit like Fred Carnot's army. The sort of kit that we have now is very, very much better. I just wonder, I, I noted your point earlier on, Dom, about the barely trained people going in to support some of the elite Russian brigades there. These, if you're barely trained, one would expect they're barely kitted out. Again, the operating in this environment at the moment is incredibly challenging. And, and when it comes on to the sort of tank crews, it's that discipline to do, make sure your tanks, are, your tracks are tightened every day, make sure your oil levels are working. Because you forget about those, you try and take shortcuts, you will come unstuck. So when I look at what's happening at the moment, and and the weather is is really moving against manoeuvre warfare. But if, you, if you've got morale, professionalism, and, and to a certain extent, adrenaline will keep you going, but adrenaline will only last so long. So I really feel for those people in the front lines, but I, I'm slightly more confident that um, the Ukrainians will be able to perform better than perhaps some of these barely trained Russian conscripts that have been thrown into the front. Yes, I agree. Now, onto tanks specifically. I remember if you if it was uh, absolutely Baltic outside, you could drive around for a day doing the on on exercise or or what have you, and then at night you'd be able to well stick the barrel over the back decks, elevate the barrel, put a thermal sheet over that, and a camouflage net over that, and actually it's nice and toasty under there. You keep it nice and warm. The engines, if they've been running all day, nice and warm. The crew the crew's happy. I mean. These days, how do you think that survives against thermal sites and drones and all this kind of stuff? How much, the amount of heat that a tank will chuck out if it's been operating for a number of hours must be very visible, I would have thought, these days. And also, what can you talk, can you talk us through the, the actual effects on the petrol, oil, lubricants of extreme cold temperature? Because it doesn't, as it gets stickier, as it gets colder, it just simply doesn't work. So what kind of temperature do tanks really start having problems? Yeah, that, that's a really good point, Dom. And I rather glibly talked about my experience in Canada, keeping things running. But of course, you will remember that there is an operating procedure on tanks called Silent Watch, where basically you've just got the tank batteries that are, that are keeping the tank sites going and everything else. And I'm sure a lot of those we the tank warfare that we're seeing in Ukraine is evolving with the use of drones, with the use of tanks being used as snipers. But you can imagine those sniper tanks. And because the Challengers and the Leopards and now the Abrams are accurate out to three kilometres, whereas the Russian tanks are only accurate out to about 1.5 kilometres, they are having an effect. But they will be sitting in their positions in silent watch. So all they have is their batteries, which won't be chucking out much power. But you're right, when it, there, there are operating levels. But one must remember that the Leopard and the Challenger, and to a, and to a degree the Abrams, were designed and built 20-odd years ago, their inception, to fight the Russians in Europe. So you're, you, you're, you're absolutely right that there is an operating limits, a lower limit and an upper limit. And there is a time where where the diesel will become waxy, as you say, and trying to make sure that is kept at a temperature that will still work. I think from the from what I've seen at the moment and the temperatures even last year, they weren't getting quite to that extreme where 
you know, the tank wouldn't start. And you know, what one does remember that incredible stories in the Second World War, particularly deeper into Russia, perhaps, or, or, although not a million miles from where we're talking, Kursk and things like that, with people actually having to light fires underneath the uh, the tank fuel tanks so that the uh, the waxy diesel or, or petrol, as it was in those days, most tanks ran in petrol in the Second World War, would become more able to work. But absolutely, things get frozen, sites get frozen. If your thermal site is frozen, it's not going to work. It's going to move around. And that's why I come back to the, it's all about professionalism. You have, I'm sure it's the same with you flyboys flying around. You want to make sure everything works properly. And if you maintain it correctly, make sure it's oiled up and everything else uh, and run it as it should be, it will work. Now, I'm not so familiar with the Russian tanks, but I gauge that they are not necessary that they're engineered just to fight rather than to be able to, you know, ergonomically design so that they're with the crew in mind as well. So there are an awful lot of things to think about. But I think uh, I think we might be coming on to the Abrahams, which I've written about in the paper this week. But to me, although there's only 31 of them coming into the van of the battle at the moment, it is a significant step forward. Uh, and they are such a simple tank to use that actually they could become effective relatively quickly just last one for me here now with with your hat on as a um as a commander of men and women so what uh, we talked earlier on about the uh or you meant to point about the leadership and equipment that these new recruits new augmentees are likely to get in the russian military compared to the ukrainian uh military now as a commander what what should you be thinking about what should be happening to new arrivals and in terms of the standards that they that they are kitted, literally kitted out in, and the, and the kind of low-level command that they should uh, they should be subjected to, to to get them in and make sure they are effective fighting fighting soldiers in their own right as quickly as possible. But yeah, so sort of take take us up a level and talk, and talk about what's going through your mind now as a, as a regimental and battalion commander. That that is a really good point, uh, and um, p- perhaps in the British military we haven't gone through the augmentation, getting people in to to replace those who've been lost is not something that we've been terribly used to in the British military. But it's very key, very important that all those new people are really well looked after and integrated into the team. It it is a team game; it's not individuals. And one hears some horrific stories com- coming out of out of the Russians, that some of those gnarly old fighters who've been out for a long time see some of these young kids coming in and lead them through fear. And I'm sure the same with your experience and other ex-soldiers listening to this. Fear is it, fear doesn't get you to charge the enemy uh, and uh, do your job, not to affect it should be. So I think it's very keen, the integration of the new people into the organisation they're coming with. And also not getting them straight into the front, even in the First World War. New conscripts, new people coming out from the UK to, to France were were trained at the back and integrated into the units before they were put into the fight. So that is absolutely key. And I think it's, it's absolutely key that at all levels, from me as a regimental commander, as a colonel, right down to the sort of the the corporals on the ground get around these people and see them. Um, I'm sure I like to think that when I commanded the 1st Royal Tank Regiment that had 600 people in it, I knew every single one of them. And and that, to me, was the most important thing, getting around and doing that. And that's something that, again, one can... I look upwards and 
think did every general in the British Army know who I, or well, not necessarily who I was, but who my regiment were? I think they probably did. I, but yeah, one just gets the feeling that's not the case for other units and other organisations and countries. And I think it's been part of the great British fighting spirit and the why with relatively few and light forces, we perhaps punched above our weight. And I think we have always done and still do, but by the leadership at every level, not just the colonels and the majors and the colour sergeants, but right down to the bottom level and making people feel part of a team. That's what that's to me is the key thing, making sure it's a team effort and and not an individual effort, because it's the sum of the parts that make you effective, not the parts. Thanks, Hamish. Always a pleasure to hear from you. Just wanted on an unrelated matter to put to you COP28 and the fact that Bashir al-Assad, head of Syria, of course, responsible for the deaths of many, many thousands of his own people and indeed using chemical weapons. You, of course, and he have a past history and you've worked very closely on that terrible conflict. What's your reaction to the fact that he's been invited to COP28 and indeed his being brought back into the fold by the international community, particularly in the Middle East of late? Because, of course, it does matter in the context of the ICC declaring Putin a war criminal, because if war criminals such as Assad are allowed back in, arguably that does have quite serious ramifications for the long-term legitimacy of such declarations by institutions like the ICC. But I'm interested to hear your reflections. As you can imagine, I could talk for days on this, and it's something very, very close to my heart. Having spent six years in and out of Syria collecting evidence of the atrocities, the evidence of the chemical attacks, and I was so delighted when the French government two weeks ago produced an arrest warrant for Assad. So the fact that he's turned up at COP28, or or not turned up, he's been invited. That normalisation to me is is absolutely unbelievable. It's despicable. It's disgraceful. I was in Parliament in September 2013 when uh, Parliament voted not to punish Assad for the massive chemical attack in August 2013 that killed up to 1,500 people. And the Obama red line was in place at the time. And I think it's such an important thing. Yeah, there are so many other events, world events that are linked to that, not least, as you mentioned, Putin. I don't think Putin would have invaded Ukraine in February 2022 if it hadn't been for Assad's uh, or the world appeasing Assad. The view I think Putin took as well, they did nothing when Assad used all these chemicals and he's still in power 10 years later. So so get on with it. And I think atrocities are, are, are still happening in Syria. Uh, and we've seen so um, many other bits and pieces. So I, I just find it in Congress. To, to me, COP28 has completely lost any real meaning because you have a, uh, a genocidal tyrant, Assad potentially str- strutting around there, and it's it's unbelievable. But but again, I wouldn't go into the wider other wider elements to COP28 because I think you know ninety nine percent of the world thinks it's great and should be supported. And of course, we want to do major things about climate change. But when you've when you have got somebody like Assad who has made, murdered probably hundreds of thousands of his own people and, and used chemical weapons to do that, it's beyond the pale. And I would hope that the British contingent, and I know there's several ministers who I've spoken to are going, will certainly, if Assad turns up there, turn around. I also hope that the French are there with their arrest warrant if he turns up. 
I expect Assad is a coward, though, and I expect that he won't turn up. He'll probably send a bag carrier along, which to me is exactly the same as him going himself. So I hope that one would never expect the king to talk about these. And of course, King Charles III is opening COP28 tomorrow. But I would hope that the prime minister and some of the ministers from this country are going there will call this out because it just sends a terrible message around the world. And there are terrible things happening. And people like Assad should be locked away, not parade around in public, in my opinion. Well, thanks, chaps. Let's uh, let's start to draw stumps there. Let's move to final thoughts. I will. Uh, I'll go first. A um, couple of things I think it's worth keeping our eyes on this week. I think one of them is actually happening uh, today. I'm trying to remember what day it is. I work. You work a Sunday, and then it spins my whole gyros. I can't remember. Monday feels like a Tuesday, and oh, it's a disaster. Anyway, I think today's Thursday. So. Keep an eye on two things. You've got the OPEC Plus meeting today. OPEC Plus, the 23-member group of the oil-producing and exporting countries. They should have an acronym for that. Anyway, they're meeting online today talking about reduction in supply, a potential reduction in supply, which might hike the price. Now, a hike in the oil price is going to help uh, Putin for his, for his war because he needs as much money as, he's, as he can get. He's had to uh, smash the budget for next year and put the military spending up by about 70%, I think, which is going to wreck the economy in the long run. But anyway, there we go. It's also one in the eye for the U.S. because they don't want high uh, high pump prices. The U.S. OPEC, particularly U.S.-Saudi relationship, has been a bit strained just lately over oil and uh, Biden's use of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to flood the market and bring the price down some months ago. MBS, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi, he wants the price to go up. He needs oil to be above about $80 a barrel to fund fund his future, or the, the future of the country, Neom, this amazing, well, I mean, it's only an artist's impression at the moment, but the, uh, the the city up in the northwest, including the line, this city that's going to be 100 miles long, apparently, 100 miles long and 700 feet wide, just one long line of city. Anyway, so... So a lot of pressure to put the oil price up, but it will not go down brilliantly well with the US. So keep an eye on what OPEC Plus say today. Second thing to keep an eye on is a visit by Brian Nelson, who's the US Treasury Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. He's going to Turkey. I'll point you to an investigation earlier on this week by the Financial Times, brilliant piece of journalism, that showed for the first nine months of 2023, Turkey reported a $158 million dollars worth of exports goods that the US had listed as high priority this these exports went to Russia and five former Soviet countries suspecting of acting as intermediaries for Moscow so these are on a on a banned list they're on the they're all subject to US EU Japanese and UK export controls to prevent them entering Russia they include things like microchips communications equipment military gear tele, telescopic sites so 158 million left turkey that was three times the level recorded over the same period last year and up from an average of only 28 million for the years between 2015 and 2021. So it kind of makes you wonder, where did it all go? Plus, Turkey's got that stuff leaving. The um, the five countries around the stands, basically, show, show it not arriving, <laughs> as if it's just passed through and gone somewhere else. So Turkey's on the naughty step. The US are, um, I mean, Turkey, a NATO member, don't forget. The US has sent Mr. Nelson there to go and uh, go and have a have a little chat. 
So let's see what comes out of that. I've had a bit of a, I had a bit of a, di- a deeper dive into both those things in this week's Defence in Depth, which will be out this evening. But a lot of challenges to the uh, the rules based international order at the moment, and I, I posit the theory that all these little these, the fraying of the edges of this thing will have will have consequences much sooner than you might think if they're not sort of stamped on as as they occur. Anyway, that was me, Hamish. Please, final thoughts. I was going to talk about poisoning. I know that you covered it earlier this week, but Russians poisoning people with heavy metals is nothing new. Litvinenko and polonium-210. I just hope it was not polonium-210 that was used, but it just shows the sort of total war that Russia is conducting in Ukraine at the moment. Uh, and, and finally, really looking at Abrams, the 31 Abrams tanks that are now in, in Ukraine, there are thousands of Abrams, hundreds of Abrams, uh, around Europe. Um, hundreds would make a significant difference. When we think that the S-16s will probably be coming on stream in the next couple of months, that would be a very compelling force. But we'll watch very closely over the next few months. We talked about the cold, how challenging it is to operate, particularly manoeuvre warfare. But the key thing is, we, with so much else happening in the world, that NATO and the West keep supporting Ukraine as as certainly the rest of us will be. Over. Well, thanks, Hamish. We'll speak to you again soon. Be careful climbing down from uh, your garage roof. Wouldn't want you to do yourself a, a mischief in this bad weather. Francis, final thoughts, please. Well, thanks, Dom. You and I have spoken a lot today. And if listeners can bear the thought of hearing from us any more this week, then I just wanted to flag that it is the Telegraph Christmas Charity Appeal phone-in day this Sunday, the 3rd of December, from 10am to 6pm London time, which I think is 5am, 1pm Eastern Standard Time. We will be available answering calls on the phone here at the Telegraph to take donations from listeners and readers. If you're lucky, you'll get one of our columnists or perhaps the editor. If you're unlucky, you'll get maybe me or Dom. We're supporting four charities this year. Race Against Dementia, the RAF Benevolent Fund, Mary Curie, which is a hospice, and Go Beyond, which supports young people. The number for UK listeners is 0800 117 118. And I will be able to clarify what the number is for international leaders shortly. Leaders? You are leaders to us, listeners shortly. And I'll put that in the description for the episode. And indeed, I'll also try and flag that on the podcast tomorrow. So that's for our UK listeners. But hopefully there will also be a way for international listeners as well to to reach out. Please do be uh, generous, whoever you get into through to on the phone lines. And also just to flag as well, we've had a lot of people ask us about who... Uh, we should be or you should be supporting relating to charities in Ukraine. Now, we've obviously had many, many on the podcast recently. We're journalists. It's not for us to tell you, but I know people are asking us and we will produce a a list or at least provide a list of uh, charities that you might be interested in supporting. And of course, there have been many on the podcast uh, recently, too, and we'll remind you of who they were. So thank you. Uh, I'll do another reminder in the podcast tomorrow, as well as being more related to how to get in touch if you're an international listener. But as I say, this Sunday, we will be doing the phone in and you'll be able to potentially to talk to Dom and I on the phone. So thanks very much. Earlier this week, David sat down with Sarah Napton, the Telegraph science editor, to talk about the fascinating tidbit that the world might not be able to do much if Russia chose to shoot down commercial satellites. 
Thank you so much for your time today, Sarah. Would you just briefly introduce yourself and your work to our audience? Yes, I'm the Telegraph science editor and I write across the board on all, all sorts of science from space to dinosaurs to health. Anything really that has research or tech in kind of lands on my desk, really. Well, you've written a really fascinating and in some ways quite worrying for the Ukrainians article for uh, The Telegraph after you spent some time at the UK Space Conference in Belfast. So before we get into what you wrote and what you found, um, can you tell us a bit about the conference and why, why you went, why it was important? So it was a conference that happens every two years and it brings together, it's real really commercial space, but also the UK Space Agency, the European Space Agency gets over there and really talks to our business our businesses over here and um, just generally the universities all come together and talk about the research and, and what's going to be happening in the future, what projects they want to be looking for, how they make the industry work in the UK. So your story for us, the headline is Musk's Starlink satellites aiding Ukraine could be legally destroyed by Russia, says space law expert. Before we go into what he said and why he said it, could you just give us just briefly a precy on why Starlink is, is important in Ukraine? So when Russia invaded Ukraine, one of the first things they did, which is what happens in, in any modern war, is they took out commercial communications. And that just basically meant that nobody could communicate across the ground. It meant that the military were sort of stymied in their abilities to be able to launch attacks. And so Elon Musk very early was asked if he would turn on Starlink over Ukraine, and he did within, I think it was days or weeks, he did. And that's allowed the military to launch drone strikes on Ukrainian tanks and military positions. It's also obviously allowed humanitarian aid to be able to be distributed more, more fairly and, and where it needs to get to, and allowed obviously the civilians to, to keep in contact with themselves and the outside world, which is obviously very important. So it's had an, a huge impact. It's allowed Ukraine really to fight the war. I think probably without that, they would have found it very hard. But what you found is actually in the future, these satellites circling above Ukraine, aid aiding the Ukrainian armed forces, potentially, I mean, you say legally could be destroyed. So what, what was said and why is this a sort of contentious issue? What, what's at the heart of this? So I think countries are finding themselves in a tricky position when it comes to satellite technology these days because in the past satellites were generally launched by countries not companies and now you have um, specifically SpaceX but other companies are doing it as well putting these things in space which can then have a military impact so in the past it wouldn't you know arguably Russia could have hit a US government satellite and that would have been legitimate but now commercial satellites are doing the same job as what a military satellite would have done in the past that's what Russia will argue in Ukraine and the UN I think in last year Konstantin Voronstov who was from the Russian foreign ministry said that could happen that they would start targeting commercial satellites but at the time the US are very angry about that said it wouldn't wouldn't be allowed under the Geneva Convention which says you can't you're banned from attacking civilian objects but Major Jeremy Grunet was talking he was from the US Air Force's Judge Advocate General Corps, who obviously looks at the legal implications of space um, particularly, and he said now, these days, actually, yeah, commercial satellites are fair game, Russia was right, and you can take them out. And it's going to cause a huge headache going forward. Elon Musk has said that he wants his satellites to be used for Netflix, not bombing. But the, the military has said that's what they're using it for, and you can't, how do you police that on the ground? I'm not sure you can. So his quotes here is, in the context of the law of war, the Russians are likely not wrong on that because of the military benefits that these sorts of things, talking about the satellites, can provide. It doesn't mean that civilian satellites would be targeted or targeted all the time, but it does mean that they potentially could be. So this feels, I don't know, abstract and it seems like a sort of point of information, point of law. I mean, how close do you think this is to being realised? 
I think quite close, actually. And the Russians have already threatened it. And we know that technology exists for it to happen. Starlink, I think, is quite tricky if you wanted to take it out because there's so many satellites up there. I think they've got 5,000 at the moment. They want to put another 45,000 up there. So trying to take out every one of those, it's like playing whack-a-mole with communications. You couldn't really do it. But if you had um, individual satellites that were doing something specific, you could take them out. We know Russia has the capability to do it. It has missiles that can take satellites out. It's done it before. Uh, China does, the US does. So I think this probably will be a new area of warfare in the near future, I think. I I can see it happening. How did people in the room react to that? What was the sort of conversation afterwards? I think there was a shock because, as I said, when Russia said it at the UN, there was general shock and no one thought that 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 would be legal. So the fact that it is... And I mean, it almost, or, or it could, yeah, yeah, it could yeah. be. Yeah, I, I think it, di- it is that people are going to have to go away and have a real think about that, because the White House at the time when Russia said that it could be, they they basically said absolutely not. And we would respond to an attack if, if civilian infrastructure was targeted. But if it's legal to do it, it then throws up the question, would the US then be in a legal position to do anything about it? Or would it just be a legitimate part of warfare? It, it has opened a big can of worms. Absolutely. Is there anything more to say on this story, do you think? I just think it's an interesting one. At the moment, there's a real problem with who owns space and who can have the right to target things in space and who has the right to um, manage resources and mine resources in space. And, And there's no real regulation or laws that's looking at it. And so everyone is quite in the dark of what the legal framework is and ramifications and who can target what and, and and so I think we're really going to have to have a look at how, how it works in future now that we've got this strange crossover between military and civilian increasingly. Did you come away from this conference a little more pessimistic than you than you were going in? I mean I'm always pessimistic I'm a journalist but I think I remember years ago a, a military expert telling me that the next you'll know when World War 3 starts because all the comms will go down immediately and it will be the first thing that gets targeted in the next big war so I think it's always been on the radar but I think, yeah, I mean, I think I did come away feeling we are quite vulnerable and we rely so heavily on on satellites now for everything in our daily lives, everything from ambulances getting to where they need to be to using your mobile phone to be able to navigate to where you need to get to. Use them for everything. And if they go down, life as we know it will just end immediately, instantaneously. And that I think that is worrying. Sarah Napton, thank you very much. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, a world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And... If you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, 
We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.